You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. There are some relatively easy teachings of, of Jesus that are comforting and they're, they're peace-giving. And there's some relatively difficult teachings of Jesus that are hard to hear and are uncomfortable. Can you guess by that preamble which one of the two we'll be in today? Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount, and it was intended for serious followers of Jesus. It was not a, a sermon to the general public. The Sermon on the Mount is not for the timid. It's not for the half-hearted followers of Christ. Because what Jesus says here will either challenge you to walk more closely with him, or today it's going to offend you. Have you noticed there's really no such thing as middle ground when it comes to Jesus? He even says a few chapters later in Matthew chapter 12, you're either for me or you're against me. No middle option, no third way. So if you're a copy of God's word, would you go with me please to Matthew chapter five? We've been in the gospel of Matthew the last few weeks. We'll be there for a few weeks to come. Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. Hope you have your copy of God's word with you today. You can share with someone, go to your, your smart device and let's go to Matthew chapter five. We'll begin in verse 31 together. Matthew chapter five, verse 31. We'll see some words from Jesus today that I'll just let you know up front, they're difficult. Matthew 5, 31, Jesus is speaking and he says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Aren't you glad you're not up here preaching right now? The bar that Jesus sets when it comes to divorce is higher than the bar that our culture has set. That's why this is difficult. Our culture has said, our legal system has said, you can divorce with a no-fault divorce with irreconcilable differences. Let me just tell you, after being married for 32 years now, marriage is irreconcilable differences. <laughs> you just learn to love one another through it and give grace to one another through it and to love your spouse with the same kind of love that Jesus has given you and to express the same patience that, that God has given you through Christ. It's, it's quick forgiveness. It's great amounts of grace. There are a few things I want you to, to hear from these two verses, verse 31 and verse 32, and even I want you to hear from the totality of, of Scripture today because I know I'm talking to many in this room who are married, many in this room who have been divorced, many in the room who have been divorced and remarried, probably a really large group in here at the 10 o'clock of those who plan on getting married one day, probably even some who plan on not getting married one day. It's quite an eclectic crowd that is seated before me. I'm not preaching this passage to shame anyone. In fact, if you are divorced or you are divorced and, and remarried and that's in your past and you're a Christian, hear this as well. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
and divorce, even outside of the biblical allowances, it's not the unpardonable sin. But also here, God hates divorce because it breaks covenant. And I bet almost everyone in this house has been close enough to know this is true. There's always collateral damage in a divorce. God hates divorce, but he does not hate the divorcee. Important for you to to hear that. I also today want to lift up those who are married today to encourage you to stay in your marriage. It's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of the covenantal love that God has given to us through the Son, Jesus. I imagine that those in the room today that you've gone through a divorce, you would want me to encourage those who are married to look to Jesus. If you have gone through a divorce, I would imagine you'd want me today to encourage those who, get planned, who plan to get married one day to see God's plan for marriage, God's design for marriage. There are some allowances in scripture for divorce. We see one of them right here in verse 32 that Jesus gives of, of, of adultery, of sexual immorality. And in the full counsel of scripture, we also see later on in 1 Corinthians chapter seven that abandonment is another allowance, if you will, that God gives for, for divorce. I also would have to say that abuse is in there as well. Because abuse is the exact opposite of what a godly marriage was intended to be as according to Ephesians chapter four, verses 25 through 27. So those allowances of adultery, abandonment, abuse, are given, I believe, in the full counsel of of scripture. But I want you to also hear, when it comes to adultery, when it comes to abandonment, God does not command divorce. He just concedes divorce. In fact, there's some marriages in this room and in this church family that have endured adultery, have endured abandonment, and they made it out on the other side. You know, if the the tomb is empty, anything is possible. And so marriages can endure that. God does not command divorce, but he concedes divorce. But I do want to say when it comes to physical abuse within the marriage, call the police and call the church and get out of that house. And then you can begin talking about what is next. Get away from any unsafe situation that you might find yourself in. Jesus is asked about marriage again. And I'm glad because the second time he expands upon this. He expounds upon this, a bigger picture of of marriage. For for those who are here today that you planned on, on getting married, you need to know what God's word says about marriage and divorce. And those who are married, you need to be encouraged to stay married. Go over a few pages to the right. Go to Matthew chapter 19, if you don't mind with me, please. Matthew chapter 19, we'll pick it up in verse three, where he was asked again about marriage and about divorce. And it's interesting, the question that's asked by the Pharisees and how Jesus responds to it. Matthew chapter 19, again, just a few pages over to the right. Keep your place there in Matthew five. We'll bounce right back there. Matthew 19, verse three, the Pharisees, came up to him, came up to Jesus, and they tested him. They're trying to trick him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answered, have you not read? Let me stop right there. That was a shot over the bow to them because all these people did was read. 
You're just like, wait a minute, have you not read the Torah? Have you not read the scriptures? Have you not read what my father has said? So that's an insult. Just want you to know, I love the humor of Jesus. Oh, have you, are you not a reader? Can, can you not read Pharisees? Because that's what you do all day long. You can go to Jerusalem today. I mean, you can fly out there today and go to the Wailing Wall and see the, the leaders of the law and see the scribes today. You know what they're doing? They're rocking back and forth with the Torah in front of them. They're, they're reading scripture over and over again. So for Jesus to say, oh, have you not read? I love that about him. Have you not read that God who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Hmm, two appropriated genders. And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate few things about this in, in verse 5. If you have the New American Standard, it uses the word joined. The ESV uses the word hold fast. If you have the NIV, it uses the word united. It's, it's the Greek word koleo, and it's a covenant word. And it means to be permanently attached to one another. The word kola in Greek is the word glue. And it's where the word koleo comes, comes from. This covenant word is two coming together as, as one. And you see that in, in verse six. There's something else that you've got to see in verse six. It is God who does the joining. That is the key to understanding the high value of a marriage. God does it. God brings them together. God is the one that forms them in this covenant relationship. And for you note takers, you can write this down. Marriage is a covenant relationship intended for a lifetime which reflects the beauty and the power of the gospel. It is covenantal language that is used right here between a husband and a wife, which means, and this may be good encouragement for those who are married and those who, who plan on getting married, that covenant relationship you have with, with your spouse is more important and even has higher value than your relationship with your parents and your kids and your siblings and your best friends. There's really only one other place in scripture that you see this whole thought of a covenantal relationship, and this is beautiful. It is your relationship with Jesus Christ. More specifically, your relationship with the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ, in covenant. So marriage is a covenant relationship, and it was intended, designed by God to last a lifetime because it reflects the lifetime beauty of the gospel. It reflects the lifetime power of the gospel. Go back, if you will, to Matthew chapter five. Let's pick it up in verse 33. Matthew chapter five, verse 33, Jesus continues. And he says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by, by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. I mean, we, we can today, but back then you can't make one hair white or black. Verse 37, let, let, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more, anything more than this comes from evil. So you note takers, you write this down. Our words reflect our character and our character should support our words. Now, that can be positive or negative, of course. 
godless words reflect a godless character, and our godless character is just supporting our our godless words. But the, the opposite is true as well, right? Godly words reflect, is a reflection of our godly character, and our godly character should support our godly words. What we see here is that God wants us to be reliable in our speech as he is. You know, all the promises of God are reliable because God is reliable. All all the the promises of God are true because God himself is true. So here he's calling us to be people of of our word. When he does that, he's calling us to be people of of character. To to be a woman of the word, to to be a man of your word, really is a, a reflection or it's an indication of what's happening on the inside. That's so much what the Sermon on the Mount is about, is, is the heart, not the outward. The Old Testament was all about the outward. The New Testament is about our heart. Who does our heart belong to? What does our heart belong to? This is why in verse 37, our yes should simply be yes. And our no should be no because there should be enough strength in our character that we don't have to add additional words or additional phrases to try to bolster our statements. This is why Jesus says in verse 34, verse 35, you don't need to swear by heaven. You don't need to swear by, by earth. You don't need to swear by a city because if your character is right, people should accept it when you simply give your word. I hear our president say, this is the God honest truth. I'm not lying, man. I hear other politicians say that. I hear Republicans say that. Let me just make sure I can offend everybody here today. When I hear people say things like that, hey, I'm telling the truth this time, or honestly, or I'm being honest, man. When I hear someone say that, what I hear is don't watch my character, just listen to my words. And Jesus is telling us, watch both, your heart and your words. Jesus, who has the highest standard, says we should live our lives, Christians here at Highland, in such a way that when we say yes, our character supports our yes. When we say no, our character supports that no. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus begins in verse 38, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You probably heard that phrase before. It comes straight from the Old Testament from Exodus chapter 21. And it was actually a law for the government. It was for the government to impose a penalty, an equal penalty to the thing that was done, to the injustice that was done. But at some point between Exodus 21 and Matthew chapter five, the religious leaders of the day had removed it from being just a governmental issue and have encouraged the people now to make it a personal issue that if anyone takes anything from you, you you get revenge. If anyone comes at you, you just come right back at them. So Jesus is coming to correct that on a personal level for his followers. It is no longer when you are wronged, go get even. Now let me do say that this passage does not mean that you should let people mistreat you or or take advantage of you or let people hurt you physically, but Jesus is gonna give a huge principle right here. He begins here in verse 39 when he talks about the right cheek. The assumption in the 
in the Middle Eastern world, and it's kind of an assumption here in the Western world as well. I think usually about 90% of the population, 85 to 90% of the population are right-handed. I have to be careful with this because I married a left-handed lady, but mo- most of the population is, is right-handed. That would be the assumption as well. This is why it's so unique back in the book of Judges when Ehud, who was the left-handed judge, they made such a big issue out of him being a left-handed Benjaminite. Because most warriors, most people, most of the population, you would always would fight with your right hand. Well, to, to strike someone on the right cheek with the right hand, you can't give a right hook. The only way to do that is to slap them with the back of your hand. It was an insult. It was a, a backhand. In fact, we even use that term in our language today, a backhanded compliment is actually an insult, right? Hey, you look good for your age. Um, you're doing great in life, you know, considering your upbringing and all. Um, you, don't, you don't sweat that much for a fat man. Like, th- those are like backhanded compliments, right? That's like, man, that, that kind of felt good and all of a sudden it hurt. You know, that, that's what's happening in, in this passage here. Jesus is talking about being, about being insulted. If someone insults you, you don't insult them back. In fact, Jesus says you turn, and if another insult comes, just let that insult come. Verse 40, he talks about a tunic and, and a cloak. And if you want to change that to our vernacular today, that'd be your shirt and a jacket. If someone sues you and they're, they're suing for your shirt, Jesus says, go ahead and give them the jacket as well. Go ahead and give them the cloak also. And then we see here, if someone begs of you, you see that in verse 42, someone begs of you an item, give them what they asked for and even more. Then in verse 41, you probably know this, it was Roman law at that time. Remember, the Jews were under Roman occupation. And so a Roman soldier could tap the shoulder of, of a Jewish man and say, carry my pack for me. And the law said, demanded, that that Jewish person carry that pack of his for one mile, exactly one mile. But Jesus says, no, no, don't, don't, don't bring it one mile. Bring it two miles. If, if someone commands you to serve them, then serve them well. Serve them extra well. Now, here's the principle. If you want to write this down, it is better to be empty of possessions than to be full of bitterness. So Jesus is coming, and again, he's coming right toward our our hearts, and he's saying it's better for you to lose your pride, to lose your comfort, to lose your jacket, to lose your time, to lose your preferences than to take on vengeance in, in your own life. It's better to be empty of some possessions than to have your heart filled up with bitterness. Jesus is saying, I'd rather you suffer the loss of all your property than for you to have the effect of bitterness and retaliation and vengeance in your heart because that's not how people in the kingdom live. Matthew chapter five, verse 43 Now you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he, God, makes his son, I love that, his son, rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors, do not even the IRS agents do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than than others? Do not even the Gentiles, those outside of God's family, do the same. You you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is is perfect. Let me help to understand verse 48 because that feels heavy. It almost feels like the opposite of everything Jesus has been talking about 
about us not having to be like perfect on the outside, just that our heart needs to belong to him. That word perfect there, another great word for that, that, that word would be whole or complete. Just as the father is, is complete and whole in his character, it, it is Christ calling us to take on the character of of God, to being complete like God, to being whole like God. It's not, hey, clean up your behavior so people will think better of you. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He is saying here, take on godly character. Verse 43 is kind of interesting because that's actually not what the Bible says. This is why Jesus said, you have heard. But he didn't say this is true. Nowhere in the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament alike, does it say, hate your enemies. So the religious leaders, again, took a verse that says, love your neighbor, that's back in, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, and they added to that and hate your enemies. That's not scripture, that's not anywhere in the Bible. The, the, the religious leaders heard, love your, love your neighbor, and they automatically assumed that that meant God said to, to hate your enemy if that is the case. But Jesus says, no, what I want you to do, verse 44, love them. Verse 44, pray for them. Jesus says, mimic my father. He gives this common grace, verse 45. He, he brings the sun and the rain on the godly and the ungodly. So Jesus says here, be generous like him. God gives to those who love him, but God also gives to those who hate him. Mimic my father. It's always easy to love those who, who love you back. This is what Jesus is saying in verse 46, verse 47. It's easy to love those who are your friends, but Jesus' radical call here is to love those who despise you, to, to love those who, who are your enemies, to, to love those who talk about you behind your back, to love those who insult you, to love those who, who persecute you. And he does use the word here, love. You see that word love in verse 44? In Greek, it's the word um, agapeo, which is the word that you probably know as agape. So Jesus does not give any of us an out when it comes to our enemies, those who, who in, in insult us, because this word agape means the highest form of love, like an unconditional love, a sacrificial love, this, this giving love. is the same love, Christians, that you're loved with by the Father through the Son. That is an agape love, the highest form of love you are loved with by the Father. And in the same way, Jesus says, says here, oh, your enemies, those who insult you, those who persecute you, those who are unkind to you, I want you to love them with the same agape love that you have received from the Father. So you can write this down. When you experience God's love towards you, then you can express God's love toward others. Let me just say this in love. You're gonna to have to experience God's love first before you can ever express God's love to others. Because I don't know about you, when it comes to people talking about me behind my back or people talking about my family or people who insult me or people who are unkind to me, I can't love them with my love. My love is very limited. And I'll go on record, my love is pretty conditional. But when I realize how much God has loved me, with an unconditional, sacrificial, giving love, the highest form of love, and then here we're told to love others, I have to first realize I've got to experience that love, believe that love, receive that love in order to distribute that type of love. What that makes us, and I hope this does not offend anybody in this room, it simply makes us conduits here in Waco. 
We're just receiving the grace of God, receiving the love of Jesus, and then we're just redistributing on along. In other words, it's impossible to love others with your own love. You're gonna have to love others with the love that you have accepted and believed in through Christ Jesus. The only way to love them is to first receive God's love and then love them with the same love that you have received. So let me step back again from this passage and give you the big overarching theme of Matthew chapter five. And here it is. Everybody needs Jesus. If you've been married for 50 years and have been so faithful to your spouse, hear me clearly, you desperately need Jesus. And if you're on marriage number four and the first three ended not in a biblical allowances, you also desperately need Jesus. And if you always keep your word and your word is your bond, you need Jesus. If you break promises all the time, and your word is not to be believed because of your character, you need Jesus. If you love people who are unfriendly towards you, you love people who are simply unlovable, you need Jesus. If you despise people because they don't look like you or act like you, you need Jesus. The most highly religious person in this room right now who tries their hardest to follow all the rules of God. And you think that might be you? I've got something for you. You need Jesus. And for the most highly irreligious person in this room who has no restraint on sin whatsoever, you need Jesus. And Christian, listen to me. You did not need Jesus just on the day of your salvation. You need him every day. And non-Christian, let me in love say, you need Jesus to give you a new life and a new heart and a new start. And oh, he will. Would you stand with me, please, for us to pray together? Father, thank you for your word to us today. Jesus, thank you for loving us enough to give us truth that is uncomfortable. Because we hear all these other things from the talking heads around us. It's not filled with grace or not filled with truth. Jesus, when you come at us, it is 100% grace, 100% truth. So God, help us to absorb this truth now and by your grace and through your power to make adjustments in our lives and our character that'll only happen as we give you the fullness of our hearts. So God, I pray today for, for everyone in this room, God, that we would give you all of our heart. I pray for me. God, I want to give you all of my heart and not hold back a portion. I don't want my heart divided. God, maybe many in, in this room, they would say the same. God, I, I need to give all of my heart to you. Maybe some non-Christians in this room would say, I need to give all my life to you and all my sin to you, all of my brokenness to you, all of my past. God, that's all you're looking for. The fullness of our hearts. Here they are. Take it.
as an offering for all that you have done. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. There's God's word. It's, you've heard it, you've received it. Now, how do we respond to something this, this weighty? If you're here today and you have a physical sickness, asking for God to, to heal your body, asking God to, to, to heal your mind. We'll have elders in the corners of, of the room, my far right, my far left. Elder will be there with his wife. We'd love to anoint you with oil, just as James chapter five prescribes for a church family. If you wanna come here to the altar and just and pray, maybe lay your marriage before the Lord. Lay your hurts before the Lord. Lay, lay your mouth, your words before the Lord. Lay some unkindness before the Lord and just, just leave it there. We'll have some staff members who will be here at the front. If you're not a believer in Christ and today you want that new life, that, that rescue, a new start, heaven, then please come and tell one of these staff members that I want Jesus today. Or if you want to come and pray with a staff member and, and a spouse and you are a believer already, you just want us to know how to pray for you, come and let us know. We'd love to pray with you, to pray for you. Because it's a very young room, maybe some of you would want to come up and pray for your parents' marriage. To pray for healing for your mom and your dad. For restoration, for forgiveness, for grace. For your parents' marriage to rightly reflect the beauty and the power of the gospel. There'll also be some prayer requests on the bottom of the screens that were submitted to, uh, to us from you last week. So maybe you'd want to use this time to pray for others in the church family. But let's sing. And once you please come.